Asshole Court is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time, especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. Exactly 20 years ago, on a seemingly random Tuesday morning, multiple commercial airliners crashed into the World Trade Center towers, the Pentagon, and a field in Pennsylvania. The attack stunned the globe. Many people found themselves asking who would or even could have orchestrated such a devastating and malicious attack on civilians. It wasn't very long after the Twin Towers fell that the image of its perpetrator became more clear in the minds of the world. A tall and slender, bearded man who was currently residing in the mountainous region of some far-off country that most Americans couldn't find on a map. A man that resembled more Middle Eastern mystic or maybe an extra in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Osama bin Laden was his name, apparently. It sounded vaguely familiar to some, though they probably couldn't pinpoint why. Okay, everyone thought, that's the guy, I guess. The next question was then, why? Why would he organize this attack? And the American political apparatus and some others, including country music stars like Toby Keith, were quick to respond. Osama bin Laden did 9-11 because he hated us for our freedoms. Which, obviously, was the most easily digestible and satisfying answer in the immediate aftermath. This guy and his evil army hated us because we were too fucking awesome and they were jealous. Fuck yeah. And a lot of the country ate that answer up. They put stickers on their car, rocked American flag pants and shirts and hats, and declared that they were ready to put a boot up the ass of every Muslim within spitting distance. Of course, the real answer as to why Osama bin Laden organized the attack was a bit more complicated. And as you'll find out, Osama bin Laden himself is complicated. In the great man theory of history, major historical figures singularly alter the human historical landscape with their actions. They are the cause, not the effect. A lot of people might argue that Osama bin Laden was this kind of historical change agent, a man that himself had started a holy war against the United States. But more modern takes on history argue instead that every historical figure, from the most impactful to the most obscure, is mostly swimming in the currents of time and influence of the events that preceded them. So which take is more accurate when it comes to a man who takes down a New York icon and whose image would be emblazoned on millions of rolls of toilet paper and gun range targets? Was Osama bin Laden a kind of historical black swan? Some extraordinary historical agent of doom? A kind of real-life comic book villain? Or was he just some guy with a lot of money and influence who was steered towards hate and religious fundamentalism in a time when that wasn't actually all that uncommon? We'll examine all of that and the life of 21st century America's most hated man, in this deep dive episode of Asshole Court. All right, before we get into preliminary scores, I want to pause for a minute to say something. We're obviously about to talk about Osama bin Laden as a person, and of course, the 9-11 attacks are a part of that. If the only way that you can digest these discussions and its underlying information is with a sort of one-note somberness, go ahead and tune out right now. 
I mean, it isn't like we're going to be making jokes about 9-11 or its victims because every person that is involved in this recording was 19 or 20 years old when the attacks occurred. We all remember it very well and have massive respect for its impacts, especially for the victims and their families. But we are a comedy podcast, after all, and we will make jokes on other aspects of bin Laden and his life at every opportunity offered. So if you're going to get all sanctimonious and hit us up with some one-star review about being insensitive, we don't think you'd uh, actually be a fan of the show anyways. So it'd be best for everyone involved if we just don't interact at all. Kiss my ass with yeah. the one-star review. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just, we get it, dude. But, I mean, if if all, if all you can do is be, like, sanctimonious about, like, it's 9-11, dude, you can't make jokes. I'm like, shut the fuck up, man. So, I just want to go ahead and put that out there. Like I said, if, if you can't make jokes about terrorism and stuff like that, then you are not going to enjoy this show. <laughs> also, real quickly, I don't know if you guys know it or not, but this is our two-year anniversary show. Woo-woo! Randy, Mikey, and I wanted to thank each and every one of you guys for supporting us over these past two years. We are beyond humbled for all the support and love we've gotten from you guys, and uh, just can't thank you guys enough. I mean, thank you for all your posts, your comments, I mean, everything that you do. We really appreciate it. Even you, Wizard70, we appreciate <laughs> you. Actually, I don't appreciate you at all, except for that you've given me fodder for multiple jokes across <laughs> multiple shows. But yeah, thanks so much, man. We appreciate it. I mean, keep your seatbelt buckled. We got a lot more in the, in the pipeline for you guys. Now let's get to preliminary scores, fellas. Buddy, what you got? All right. So for me, um, uh, of course, yeah, like you said in your intro, or just right there, um, you know, I was, I believe I was 19 when the, mm -hmm. when the attack, yeah, I was 19 when the attacks happened. And I mean, I remember very vividly that morning waking up and I actually called over to Randy's house right after the first one struck. Mm -hmm. And uh, Randy wasn't there, but his sister was. And me and her were on the phone when the second plane ran into this, uh, into the second tower. And I mean, it was it was life changing, man. Yeah. Like it was a day that stood still, unlike any other day that I can remember. Mm -hmm. um, and just the way that the the way that the country kind of came together, it was just eh, I've never experienced anything like that before nor after mm -hmm. in my entire life. And you never will again. No, nope, <laughs> probably not. I hope I don't. Um, no, I mean, in terms of the country coming together. That's, that's, <laughs> I hope I do on that end. God. But no, I mean, like, and it hit hard because my brother has lived most of his life up in New York. Um, he lived not far from that area, mm -hmm. and we couldn't get in. We couldn't call him that morning, so it was a it, it was a very profound event, um, just like it was for many Americans. Learning everything afterwards, you know, I, I'm not really big on history, so I know that there's a lot of stuff that kind of brought us up to that point right mm -hmm. there, but. You know, uh, you know, as an American, you know, you you heard so much and you saw so much. And so, you know, there's you don't know what exactly was the truth and what wasn't. So I'm mm -hmm. excited about this episode to kind of find out all the, the nuts and bolts of everything mm -hmm. behind the story. But for that event that is so ingrained into my head and just knowing everything that I know before we decided to do the show. Uh, I mean, he's probably going to rank the highest for me on a pre-show asshole mm -hmm. score. Going into this, I'm going to give Osama bin Laden a 9.75, okay. and uh, we'll see where it where uh, where the dust settles. All right. Randy, what you got, brother? All right. So like Buddy said, everybody remembers where they were when this shit went down. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, it's funny, though. Younger people, I always ask them, I'm like, where were you at 9-11? They're like, I don't even remember it, because they were like, I was three. Well, and, and I'm it, always like shocked. I'm like, oh my God, I feel like it was a, a moment that everybody experienced, but then I remember... That's right. Not everybody's my age. Well, and it's the same thing when the generation of the folks, when Kennedy got assassinated. True. Everybody exactly. remembers where yeah. they were when they heard the president got killed. So um, I was in college. My two roommates, um, we were there. 
It's before class. It was early. And I remember my buddy came in and woke mm-hmm. me up. He's like, something's going on in New York City. And we were sitting there watching TV and exactly the second tower. And you're like, what the fuck is happening mm-hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. So to isolate bin Laden away from 9-11, which I think we'll probably try to do throughout the show, because mm-hmm. um, it is about bin Laden and not necessarily about 9-11. Right. This guy's a fucking animal. Not a fan in any way, shape, or form of anything that he stood for, Mm -hmm. did, and tried to represent throughout his whole fucking life. I'm glad he's dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fuck this guy. I'm going 10.25 right off the rip. Um, I don't know if there's many humans in history other than our our guy Hitler that stands at 11 who could have been a worse dude. So fuck this guy. 10.25 off the rip. That's about what I got. Okay. Uh, and I, you know, I mean, it's hard not to, you know, reflexively, I, you know, you want, especially, I mean, if you'd asked anybody on September 12th, this guy's a solid 11, you know what I'm saying? I, I try to be like objective as much as I can in terms of who he was and stuff like that. You know, there's no denying that he's a fucking horrible person. Like, it's just awful. So, you know, I, 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 before we decided to do the show, I'd read a good bit over the past 10, 15 years about this because I've wanted to understand it more and stuff like that. But yeah, there's no really way around it. Uh, I mean, like I said, I honestly was going to come in at the same place with Buddy at a 9.75, either in that range or like a 10, but I'll just go with um, I'll go with a 9.75 to start. All right. With a 10.25 from Randy, a 9.75 from Mikey, and a 9.75 from Buddy, Osama Bin Laden's pre-show asshole score is a 9.9. Okay. There you go. 9.9 to start. Yeah. Pretty fitting. Fuck this guy. Yeah. There yeah. you go. All right. Interested so. to learn to see what's going to go down, though. Yeah. Y'all ready to learn? Let's do it. Let's crack it. Osama bin Muhammad bin Awad bin Laden is born on March 10th, 1957 in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. He wasn't whoa, whoa, Steve bin Laden? I know. Well, Osama bin Laden's full name actually means Osama, son of Muhammad, son of Awad, son of Laden. Muhammad refers to bin Laden's father, Muhammad bin Laden. So, like, imagine if we had that naming scheme and I would be like, Mikey, son of Jerry, son of Dennis, son of Ronald, and everybody would just call me Mikey Ronnie. I would be Randy Billy. (laughs) (laughs) He's born to, as I suggested, Muhammad bin Awad bin Laden. Now, Muhammad's story is is actually pretty incredible, man. Because so dad Muhammad, right? Dad Muhammad, right. correct. Okay. Osama's dad was born in Yemen in 1908. Like, poor and uneducated, like, poverty-stricken, right? Like, he immigrates to Saudi Arabia, where he works as a bricklayer and a porter, depending on which story you're hearing. It was one or the other. Actually, they know he worked as a bricklayer. There was, uh, or bricklayer. There was some talk about him working as a porter or whatever, which at that point like i said they're both like very low income day laborer exactly at the age of 22 and practically illiterate muhammad starts his own construction company and he builds it up to a point in which he catches the attention of abdul aziz ibn saud which is one of like the first monarchs of saudi arabia which in these countries it's this is the way it is Anywhere in the world, but specifically in these countries, like it's all relations, right? It's all transactional. So, you know, man, yeah. Yep. So he, how you get jobs. It's how things work most of the time. It's not what you not know. What it's you who know. you know. Yeah. yeah. And if you combine what you know and who you know in a case like this, where he does know how to build and stuff like that, and then also happens to impress the only family that fucking matters in that country, <laughs> then good for him, right? Uh, he ends up building his company, the Saudi Bin Laden Group, up to such an extent that he becomes known as the richest non-royal 
in all of Saudi Arabia, which is a big deal because there's a lot of fucking money rolling around in Saudi Arabia, mostly yep. due to oil. Yep. Yeah. Almost entirely all to oil. Yeah. And extremely it's all oil. Okay. <laughs> and extremely impressive coming from nothing. So, like I said, no matter what you think of Osama bin Laden, uh, what Mohammed bin Laden is able to achieve is really impressive. You know what I'm saying? He goes from practically like an illiterate bricklayer to a billionaire in the course of one generation. A funny vision. Remember the show Silver Spoons? Of course. Of course. His dad had the toy business that he yes. started out on his own, went from nothing to being yep. rich. I just imagine Osama bin Laden riding that train yeah. through the house. Yeah. With That's his fucking, it. Is a fucking drum set and he's just <laughs> riding the train around. What does your dad do? He's a builder for the king. <laughs> oh, man. Like I said, it doesn't matter what you think about Osama bin Laden himself. You got to give it to Mohammed uh, bin Laden. The guy legitimately made a fortune after being born into like abject poverty. So he's a self-starter. Yes. So now Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden is great at two things. One, obviously he knows how to make money and run a business. And two, this dude fucks. And when I mean this dude fucks, I mean this dude fucks. Yeah, I seem to recall that Osama had a lot of brothers and sisters. Yeah, Muhammad bin Laden uh, marries multiple wives, and depending on the source, fathered fifty-something children. Oh, yeah. But I mean, Mo- most reliably, the, the most reliable source I found was fifty-two kids. That is an extremely high number. But I mean, back then. People had a lot more kids back in the day. Yeah, but fifty-two is that's, still, that's, that's that's a yeah. lot. Yeah, when you when you talk about like, oh, my my grandfather had like ten or eleven siblings. I, if you have a fifty-two, that's a fucking that's yeah. a full roster for a football team, dude. Yeah, my grandmother had was one of eighteen, but mm-hmm. still, that's a damn fifty-two. Well, I mean, they were living in the Fertile Crescent, right? It's, that's the, <laughs> sort of, yeah, yeah in that the area. Fertile Crescent, yeah, yeah, man. That dude was, yeah, a baby-making motherfucker. That's what it was, Jesus man. Christ, With multiple kids. kids a year. He had around 11 wives, but he kept kind of a stable in which he had three main hoes and revolved a fourth out constantly. Something to do with the idea that the ideal number of wives in some Islamic circles is four, but, you know, he had the three solid ones and he had the one that was like flavor of the month. Hmm. Man, how would you keep all those hoes in check? And I mean, he had the money to pay for him. I guess that's well, the and one. the you have like the sort of religious doctrinaire structure that's like this is what your job is is to just be yeah. subservient to me, and you know in the meantime you get all these cool things and uh, you know just do your thing. This is your role, and they subscribe to it. Yeah, and if it was uh, nowadays, they would have a reality show. Yeah, well, it's very true. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that like basically what Mormons like? I mean, the same. I don't. Yeah. Mormons had for a while were okay with polygamy. I don't know. You know, now they're not, obviously. But those cult fault, those cult leaders love multiple women. They do. They always like more. And then you also have like if you combine that with like what's called like the quiverful movement, which is about people that uh, like they they think shoot arrows. Well, yes, that (laughs) the quiverful movement is people that want to have they say you should have as many kids as possible, like the like the Dugars or Duggars or whatever their fucking name is, man. Anyways, one of these rotated wives is Hamida al-Atas. That's Osama's mom. Okay. Okay. She was actually Syrian and was not a notoriously pious Muslim. Apparently, she was known for being like fashionable and relatively progressive. But the fact that she was not Saudi and not seen as a, like, as a devout Muslim diminished her status as a wife. It's awesome. Osama's mom was a hoe. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it off the rip. Bin Laden, your mama a hoe, fool. Now, I've read uh, different things from different sources about Osama's relationship with his father. Um, And one take is that Muhammad was a very distant father who sort of ran his family like he ran his company. 
The wives were like regional directors that would report to him on routine schedules. They were given resources as needed to be directed as they saw fit as long as it lined up with Muhammad's wishes. And then he would invite all the children in from time to time and sort of gaze upon them and give them gifts like gold coins or the like. So he would just kind of pop up every once in a while and be like, here's some money. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. If you were his kid, it was that like, out. It was like the equivalent of if you were like middle management and the CEO showed up from out of town. You're like, oh, shit, the guy's here. I better look I busy. Better, yeah. I better <laughs> fucking straighten up. Can't believe I wore my bad sheet today. Yeah. Exactly. To change clothes real quick. And then, uh, yeah, then you get to go out to that, that sweet corporate dinner where you're like, this is the payoff. Here's that gold coin. But another take that I read was that Osama was actually Muhammad's favorite child out of 52 fucking kids. And it actually with his mother being with like bin Laden's mother being considered like a lesser wife, that's kind of a big deal to be like the patriarch's favorite. So to your point, uh, 52 man roster is what they have in the NFL. He was a starting quarterback. He was a Tom Brady. That's right. Of the kids of the bin Laden, of kids. the bin Laden kids. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yep. And his mom. I wonder uh, if the mom was the favorite of him, you know, but like he couldn't say it just because it's like he, she might have that fire booty. Yeah, that's no, because he actually ended up divorcing her, oh. which was which was common, and it was such a weird thing that he actually divorced her, but sort of pawned her off to uh, one of the executive level members of the Bin Laden group. Oh, yeah, like, I'm kind so Bin Laden's stepdad ends up being like a guy that worked for his for Muhammad. Wow. It's kind of a strange scenario, but yes, it, he wasn't in love with her. I'm done with this one. This Here, has, let's, uh, let's send her over this to This shit has sitcom written all over it, man. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm sure it would fly over <laughs> very well. <laughs> oh. Uh, no, yeah. All right. According to a Middle Eastern journalist who spent some time with Bin Laden in the mid-90s, uh, quote, while others of his age were playing outside or engaged in the noisy chatter and petty squabbles that characterize most childhoods, Osama preferred to accompany his father to business and religious meetings, sitting silently by his side. Most likely, an accurate story of Osama's relationship with his father will remain speculative because in 1967, Muhammad dies in a plane crash on a plane that was piloted by dun 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 an American. Oh, wake up. Yeah. In fact, the American pilot's name apparently was Walt Trey Sentner. I'm just, I'm kidding. That's obviously not <laughs> the like, guy's name. Yeah. It would be interesting <laughs> if that's why he hated the World Trade Center. Uh, Walt Trey Sentner. <laughs> All right. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. It took, took me and Randy a yeah. second to get that one. <laughs> I was like, huh? I would be, if it was like George Tree. Yes. And not, you know, not George Bush. That's the dumbass level I'm on over here, but that's all right. I honestly couldn't even verify the American pilot story outside of one admittedly reliable source. So I don't know if the fucking pilot was American that, that killed Mohammed bin Laden or not. Or accident. Obviously, it would have been accidental. Uh, but hey, who knows? Maybe the death of his beloved father, if that description too is accurate, due to an American pilot, was what sparked Osama's innate hatred for the United States and its inhabitants but I highly doubt it. Uh, anyway, besides being bummed about his dad's death, Osama's childhood and teenage activities are pretty normal. You know, they include stuff like playing soccer, and he developed a, apparently a, a huge fascination with cars. But uh, Osama was also really into well, hang on. Were they Toyota trucks? Because it seems like all <laughs> yeah. the fucking terrorists drive Toyota trucks. It's true. It's the Toyota Hilux. And the reason that they drive them is because those things are the uh, truck equivalent of an AK-47. You can bury them in the mud. 
you can cut them in half and they will still drive everywhere. It's yeah. funny because I saw a picture here recently where they were like, oh, shit, the Taliban has all these Humvees and all these soldiers chimed in in the, in the message boards. And they were like, have fun with those. Those things break down every 15 miles. They should have stuck with their fucking Toyota pickup tr- like trucks. I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't do much research on that. You just see the pictures. Yeah. Toyota's got to fucking hate that shit. Yeah, oh, sure they do. Oh, the official truck of terrorism. It's yeah, true. I love that. That's because they made it so goddamn well. I mean, dude, yeah. it's the Hilux it's, is for real. It's the worst free marketing ever. Oh, dude, and that's the thing, because Toyotas will run forever. Well, it's... They're it's great trucks. Apparently not bad marketing, because Toyota's, uh, like, market share of the truck market is fucking huge now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But at the time, Osama is also like really into Islam. He's not just into Toyota pickup trucks. <laughs> uh, and like I said, maybe that's because his dad was notoriously devout. And as is custom during the Hajj, which is like the time uh, when every Muslim is supposed to make their uh, holy pilgrimage to the site of Mecca, the bin Laden family opens their home to various Muslim pilgrims, people that they don't even really know. Could you imagine the fucking traffic buildup around Mecca? Around this oh, it's time. crazy. It's, it would be like Atlanta during rush hour traffic. Oh, man. It's, it's, I mean, it's a lot of it's walking. In fact, I remember maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a big problem where there was the, the people got trampled and got killed because the, I don't know, something happened and they, they panicked. They panicked. A big, a big set of people walking down this, this towards the, like this, the holy site in Mecca and like they ended up just trampling, trampling people to death. Like, yeah. yeah. So it's, if you're it, smart, you're setting up a fucking falafel stand nearby that's it absolutely <laughs> you can't set up a hot dog stand that's you're not it. gonna get much business from the Muslims <laughs> we're reaching the for these high proud jokes tonight <laughs> you know but i'm just thinking lots of people set up the falafels man that's it yeah, there you go uh instead of food trucks they have food camels is that <laughs> you said it not me you know they actually import camels from australia to saudi arabia really that's a true story you there's more out. uh live tigers you know, in Texas than there is in the wild. That's true. Yeah. More people in Texas own tigers than there are in the wild. So very off subject, but yeah, heard, that, heard that today. actually. <laughs> so yeah. So like I said, the bin Ladens obviously are, are super set up and uh, they have huge palatial mansions where they let people come in and stay at their mansions during the Hajj. It's just part of the uh, culture, I suppose. Uh, and little Osama has spent a lot of time engaging in theological discussions with these pilgrims. The descriptions of a young Osama almost always include the adjectives quiet, serious, polite, and tall. And so it's not hard to imagine a young, serious, quiet, tall Osama sitting and discussing Islam with older, devout Muslims, many of which were no doubt Salafists. What is a Salafist? Eats a lot of falafels. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So a Salafist is basically like, all right, this is perhaps a gross oversimplification uh, it would be like people that are involved in Salafist movement believe that like, first of all, they're Sunni uh, Muslims. And in that community, they push for a very strict originalist interpretation of the Quran. Basically, they think the perfect society would look a lot like Mecca and Medina circa the 8th and 9th century AD. OK, so were they the ones that Saddam Hussein was with or trying to kill? Can't remember. Well, Salafists are so, so like well, it, Sunnis and Shiites, right? No, I can't you have remember. Sunnis and you, yeah, yeah, you have Sunnis and Shiites. And this is like a subsect of the Sunnis. All right. But, were they? I, I'm trying to figure out if they were the ones he was trying to kill or he. OK, he so the, the Iraq was largely Shiite, but they were dominated by like a Sunni minority, which is what Saddam Hussein was was. Uh, and then also over in um, like Iran is mostly Shiite. 
But then when you get sort of like towards like Saudi Arabia, like that, there's a lot more Sunnis. Okay. So the Sunnis have a subset, which is they're called like the Salafists or like the Wahhabis. Like the click. Who they click with. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 right. it's, it's, <laughs> the Bloods, like, Crips. Yeah. You, know? you have like Salafists and you have like Sufi Muslims. And the Sufi Muslims are more like uh, sort of like chill hippie Muslims that are into like mysticism and stuff like that. Salafists are very like fundamentalist they're like everything should be exactly what this the, the, quran, the says. quran says in, in the very most original interpretation of it right so essentially like they love things that like women being property essentially and believe that the best political system is rooted entirely in religious dictates and we'll get back to into this in a little bit here so osama being from a family of extreme wealth and connections attends one of the most elite schools in saudi arabia which it's not shocking, of course. Of course, of course he's going to do that. You got the money. You send your kids to the best schools. That's right. Uh, but what is kind of different is that the gym teacher at the school is an exiled former member of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which, for those not aware, was an Islamist group formed in Egypt whose primary goal was to ensure the establishment of Sharia law wherever possible. Its most famous slogan worldwide being, quote, Islam is the solution. And sources say that the gym teacher spent a lot of time trying to influence his students on his political and religious views. Yeah, go do some research on Sharia law mm -hmm. and tell you, see how much that would fly mm -hmm. right now in America. It'll never fly in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that, that's you know what, what I'm saying. saying. You read it and you do, it's, yeah. that's next level. They have a, they like, have a hard time having it fly in in. in because it's fucking insane, dude. Well, it it is. is fucking insane. If you have any kind of open mind and you read that shit, it, it is just yeah. next level fucked up. Well, it theocracy really is. is a disaster. Like well, it's one of those things. Like you steal something, they cut your hand off. Like that's mm -hmm. that kind of shit. You yeah, know? it's it's yeah. literally a, an entire government that's based on the religion, and it doesn't matter if you're a fan of that religion or not. It's right. just you have to live under uh, its its rules. It's it sucks. Some people would want a theocracy here. But not a Muslim one. They probably want a very Christian, Christian one. one. Of course, you know you have the Dominionists and stuff like that, which is a like sort of version of like Salafism, uh, but just in a Christian setting. But yeah, I mean, this, like I said, this guy's uh, their gym teacher, but he's a devout Muslim, or and he's like I said he's an Islamist he's and spreading his Sharia bullshit. All mm -hmm. the kids. So just like the uh, music teacher gave Ted Nugent the guitar, the six thousand dollar guitar, mm -hmm. this guy is like training, like, hey, take this pamphlet right here. Oh yeah, certainly. We'll dude. give you the first hit for free, Osama. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Imagine, yeah, like your high school gym class, but instead of the gym teacher having you stay after class to shower in front of him, he's preaching to you about your duty as a Muslim to wage jihad. I hate it when I had to shower in front of the gym teacher. See, <laughs> I knew it wasn't just me. <laughs> he said, just hang back here and clean yourself, boy. You're dirty. Yeah. Dirty. Clean down there real good. That's fucked up. All right. Now, there's no telling whether a young Osama was susceptible to the gym teacher's influence, but you know, it obviously didn't help. Man. And young minds are always susceptible. Certainly. Know. That's yeah. why they always young mind, like young people and people that are um, sort of in dire straits are the most uh, susceptible, which easily, is why easily influenced. That's right. You're a moron mm -hmm. until you're about 30 or you're just desperate too. Yeah. like if, like someone that's in like on hard times is more desperate to find a solution, which is why a lot of cults and stuff like that seek these people out. I was young just people. thinking Jim Jones. I was yeah. just yeah. when you were describing that. Yep. That's exactly who I thought out. That's who they always go after. The people that like are like desperate. Yeah. And they give them like a home and some food and they're like, we're your real family. So at the ripe old age of 17, Osama cops his first wife. He pulls a Jerry Lee Lewis and marries his cousin, Najwa Ghanim. Oh. And he begins to immerse himself heavily in the family's construction business. 
A year later, when it's time to go off to university, Osama goes to the prestigious King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah, where he studies economics and business administration. I'm assuming with the intent, of course, of being like second generation leadership for the Bin Laden. For the bin, yeah, for the business. <laughs> That's yeah. probably the only correlation I have with Osama Bin Laden. Yeah. I have a bachelor's of business administration and economics. <laughs> That's my degree. So there you go. That. Osama yeah, Bin Randy. Yeah. No, fuck no. Yeah. But Osama also continues his interest in Islam and attends lectures at university given by people like Abdullah Azam, who pushed for devout Muslims to wage holy war, a.k.a. jihad. Now, it's incredibly important here to note that Osama bin Laden and his growing interest in a more fundamental version of Islam is not abnormal at this point, at least not as a young Middle Eastern man in the 60s and 70s. Because at this point, much like the cultural shift occurring in the West at the time, a lot of young Middle Easterners are really beginning to question the whole system, man. That's right. Well, who are the hippie Muslims? Those are the, the Sufis, but yeah, this is they're not really involved in this in this whole thing. I'm just saying they they seem like the cool ones. To uh, yeah, if with. I yeah, yeah if I was if I was if someone was like put a gun to my head and was like you have to be a, a, a like a Muslim, I'd be like all right, I'm going that Sufi route. The whirling dervishes, you see them, they like spin around and they do like dance. It's pretty. It's, it's interesting. Anyways, um, roll, roll blunts and wear dresses. There you go. All right. yeah. Something like Harry Potter, like picking your house, like. I'm going with the Sufis. I'm going with the Sufis. They're super chill. They also get killed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> burn um, patchouli and blunts. That's it. But yeah, like I said, there you know, there's a whole thing going on here in the in the Middle East in the 60s and 70s. But rather than going the Western progressive hippie route of turning on, tuning in, and dropping out, the radical revolution occurring in the Middle East is pointing decidedly in the opposite direction. Instead of wanting to hold rock concerts accentuated by drugs and free love, the Middle Eastern Cultural Revolution wants to outlaw music, kill drug users, and make sure women are wearing a lot of clothes, like covering their faces and shit. But what might be more interesting to everyone is that this great Islamic reawakening does arguably get its start in the American university system. So when you said rock concerts, all I could think of is like people getting stoned to death and them calling that a rock concert. Oh, yeah. That's, that's kind of fucked up. But yeah. Jesus All right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, like I said, uh, we're going to head to Greeley, Colorado, actually, to be more precise. <laughs> I have a family member that lives in Greeley, Colorado. Right. All right. Oh, this is man, fucked I'm up. I didn't know about this. All right. There's yeah. a lot of correlations here with uh, Randy. Ah, uh, this <laughs> Fuck that. I'm on the Toby Keith side of things. America, motherfucker. <laughs> Damn it all to hell. Why is this guy so tied to me? Let me take a moment here to introduce you to the Timothy Leary of the Middle Eastern Islamic Cultural Revolution, a man by the name of Saeed Qutb, a man who, unless you believe that an Islamic global theocracy is a really fucking cool idea, made the world a significantly shittier place. Who is this Qubert guy and why should I care, you might be asking? Well, let me tell you. Saeed Qutb was born and raised in a little village in Egypt at the dawn of the 20th century. At this point in history, although not part of it, Egypt was very influenced by the British Empire, and little Saeed is educated in the British style of schooling. He goes on to become a teacher for Egypt's Ministry of Public Instruction, and Kutub, who's a fairly intellectual fellow, uh, he writes a lot. And early on, it's mostly about literature. He loves literature. He publishes in uh, multiple literary magazines of the time, mostly just talking about poems and books and stuff like that that were, you know, coming out then or like the classics. He's a fart circle guy. He is. Oh, yeah. Uh, but something is gnawing at this man. There's something about Western culture that is just getting under his skin. Yes, he continued to read the works of Western giants like Lord Byron and Shelley and Victor Hugo, and he still loves classical music and Hollywood movies, and he's still wearing suits and ties, but he's becoming more and more conservative. 
In the early 40s, he comes across the work of Nobel Prize winning Alexis Carroll. Now, Carroll also happens to be a big eugenicist, but hey, what are you going to do? A lot of people thought that was a pretty rad idea in the early 20th century. Yeah, of course. So, morons like me, what the fuck is a eugenicist? So, all right, a eugenicist. <laughs> Sorry, I just got to know. I, I'm, a eugenicist is basically uh, the scholarly underpinnings for the uh, Nazi extermination of Jews and the uh, Jesus. All yeah. right, damn. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But at the time, it was very popular. I mean, a lot of people thought that they were like, yeah, this is this is what it is. You have like subclasses of people that are a detriment to society and we have to sort of like not, eradicate them well and uh, like there was different versions of it. obviously hitler took it to the nth degree there but a lot of people at the united states has a, a long history of uh sterilizing people like uh, native americans and stuff like that so that they can't have kids it's like a slow extinction of what they consider to be like subhuman species like ted nugent thought that uh south africans were subhuman <laughs> um i can't just fucking poor Jewish people, man. They've gotten the raw end of the deal for thousands of years it's now. True. Yeah. Yeah. And if shit, you like banks and movies and all the, the good things in life, newsflash, that's mainly created by Jewish people. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Certainly. Um yeah, so Carell, like you know, his like history as a eugenicist isn't necessarily super important. It just kind of gives you an idea of where this this mindset was at. <clears throat> what is important is that Carell made a number of criticisms about Western society that really stuck with Said Qutb. Western society, he claimed, quote, instead of liberating man, as the post-enlightenment narrative claimed, Western modernity enmeshed people in the spiritually numbing networks of control and discipline, and that rather than building caring communities, cultivated attitudes of selfish individualism, end quote. Now, Kutub could have taken this ad, like admittedly fair take on Western culture, considered it, and then moved on, but it seemed to stick with him in like a toxic way, like it festered, right? So when he decided to expand his academic career by traveling to the United States to study in 1948, the well was already poisoned. Uh, of course. He spends two years in the U.S. from 1948 to 1950, and he hates every fucking minute of it. It starts with an incident in D.C., where at the time he was working and studying at the Wilson's Teachers College, he, quote, witnesses the commotion surrounding an elevator accident and was stunned to hear other onlookers make a joke of the victim's appearance. Like, <laughs> like that guy that got his hand cut off in the elevator accident, boy, oh boy, that ugly motherfucker's life just got a whole lot harder without a hand. Oh, Jesus. I don't know if that's what they said. That's what I, <laughs> that's what I was imagining. <laughs> I, was say, I was trying to come up with some sort of funny elevator yeah, incident yeah. joke. Yeah, that, yeah. That, uh, that incident bothers Kutub uh, a lot. About the incident, he later writes that Americans suffer from a, quote, drought of sentimental sympathy and intentionally deride what people in the old world hold sacred. Boy, this motherfucker would hate me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd be listening to our show. Uh, he may. And then just just to hate, hate listen. Like, you ever watch a show you fucking hate so much? Just to remind yourself, just to, like, get those endorphins kicking in. You're like, I just want to fucking kill somebody. Well, apparently, we were, like, the number 101 comedy podcast in Egypt at some point. Yeah. So, yeah. That's right. I don't know. I guess we're not hated all the way around the world. Hey. Yeah. That definitely ain't the Muslim Brotherhood guys listening no, to. This, no, <laughs> maybe it's not. it is, uh, unless it's for research. Well, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, uh, we'll see about this in a little bit. <laughs> um, okay. Shortly after the incident in D.C. and after he gets done working at that college in D.C., he heads to Greeley, Colorado, where he has a scholarship to study at Colorado State College of Education, now known as the University of Northern Colorado. He does not like it much. So, uh, again, I fucking hate all the ties that I have to this. 
when I was a senior in high school, uh, University of Northern Colorado flew me out there mm-hmm. and I met with uh, one of the coaches. I remember his name was Harvey Patton and my uncle lived in Greeley, uh, met me there, drove me to the college, did an interview. They offered me because I was an out of state player. They could only offer me a half scholarship. Yeah. It's a private school. It would have been about 40 grand a year nice. on a half scholarship to go play football in Colorado. Ooh. Yeah. So. And it wouldn't have mattered anyways because they had their whole roster filled out with the Bin Laden family. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I would have, yeah. All 52. But you know what? She, if it was full of them, I would have been fucking, I would have been the starting quarterback. <laughs> I didn't even play quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. Bin, bin Laden was built more like a wide receiver or a DB. He was an end guard tackle. <laughs> Sit at the end of the bench, guard the water cooler, tackle <laughs> anybody that comes near. It. Yeah. Oh man. But it's here at the uh, Colorado State College of Education where Saeed publishes his first major theological work titled Social Justice in Islam. Post Colorado, Kutub does a tour of most major U.S. cities and also hits up Europe on his way back to Egypt. Once home, Kutub fires off an angry book length like letter to the editor of sorts. It's titled The America That I Have Seen. What how can you be so fucking angry? You just got to come to the US. Granted, you might have hated it, but it sounds like you went on like a fucking whirlwind tour mm-hmm. of cool shit, then hit Europe, which is fucking cool, yeah. and then went back home and he's angry after well, all that. That's like generally mm-hmm. angry dude. So yeah. I take it for what it's worth, I guess. Uh yeah. Let me put it this way this motherfucker really didn't like america man he writes quote this great america what is it worth in the scale of human values and what does it add to the moral account of humanity nothing to illustrate further he expresses his disgust of american cultural particulars he hates the sports boxing in particular he hates the music particularly jazz music he writes quote the american primitive in his artistic taste both is what he enjoys as art and in his own artistic works Jazz music is his music of choice. This is what music that the Negroes invented to satisfy their primitive inclinations, as well as their desire to be noisy on the one hand and to excite bestial tendencies on the other. The Uh. American's intoxication in jazz music does not reach its full completion until the music is accompanied by singing that is just as coarse and obnoxious as the music itself. Meanwhile, the noise of the instruments and the voices mounts and it rings in the ears to an unbearable degree. Two things to pull away from that. One... Jazz music is fucking badass, and it yep. is the base for a lot of the music we listen to today. Certainly. Rock and roll and hip-hop, Oh, right? absolutely. Uh, two, kiss my fucking ass with all your fucking racist bullshit. Yeah, yeah. he's definitely racist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's definitely racist. Fucking all that shit. 100% racist. And I'm like, you're checking off two things that I really love, uh, which is boxing and jazz. Yeah. <laughs> me and you ain't buddies, bro. Yeah, not at all. Sport, you had me at sport. I was like, yeah. kiss my ass. Yeah, he, he went on and on and on about how much he hated boxing and called it like brutal and stuff like that. And I'm like, I get it, but that's the point. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they their soccer games over, over there must have been pretty fucking lightweight, you yeah. know, because you watch an English soccer game, it's pretty physical. Let me ask this. I mean, would it be that much different if like a, a redneck went over to the Middle East and was doing the same kind of research back then? I mean, where they was like, God damn, man, all they do is they just catch cobras in the, in the baskets. And, you know, they they, yeah. they listen to the worst fucking music. All I hear is. Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between like a sort of hot take like, man, this food sucks. <laughs> and then like writing a like screed, like a like sort of a allegedly high-minded critique on the entire culture as a whole a little different than being like he, he was painting real broad strokes there yeah, and yeah that, you don't so. do that in any form of life you know yeah. what i mean yeah. you don't fucking paint people with again those broad strokes that yeah. everybody falls into this certain yeah you know well and, it, and it, it really you can tell here and I'll, I'll show you here in an instant you, you can see that this is 
borderline obsessive. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he hates that there's so much mixing of sexes in public, calling it, quote, animal like. And he was shocked that it, quote, went on even in churches. And he hates American women. Fo show. He writes, <laughs> quote, the American girl is well acquainted with her body's seductive capacity. She knows its lies in the face and its expressive eyes and thirsty lips. She knows seductiveness lies in the round breasts, the full buttocks, and in the shapely thighs, sleek legs, and she shows all of this and does not hide it. Man, who turned him down? I was about to say, like thirsty lips, huh? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yep. it sounds like this dude was thirsty as fuck and probably got shut down by some Colorado college hottie. Saeed was totally stadsturbating at some point here. <laughs> He's even pissed off at the quality of haircuts in America. For real, dude. Writing, quote, in summary, anything that requires a touch of elegance is not for the American. Even haircuts. For there was not one instance in which I had a haircut there where I did not return home to even with my own hands what the barber had wrought. So <laughs> he's like furious about the haircuts he's getting. Yeah, don't go to great clips. Pay some <laughs> real fucking money for a good haircut. So he went to a barber, got a shitty haircut, and then he got shot down by some Colorado hottie. Yep. And now he's writing his you know, dissertation yep. on how much America sucks. Yeah. A after the haircut comment, he then immediately kicks into the crescendo his final definitive statement. Quote, Humanity makes the gravest of errors and risks losing its account of morals if it makes America its example. Back in Egypt, his work becomes more radical, more geared towards violent jihad, uh, and they become very influential, particularly to the Muslim Brotherhood. And long story short, he and the Muslim Brotherhood end up on the wrong side of the Egyptian government, who definitely didn't want to enact his version of fundamental Islamic law. And that isn't to say that's because they were good, because they definitely weren't. A lot of the governments in the Middle East were authoritarian and violent and corrupt, and it could be argued that the desire for Sharia law and return to simpler times was a direct reaction to that. But that's for another show on another podcast. Anyway, Kutub is executed in Egypt in 1966 while refusing an offer of mercy uh, should he publicly denounce the jihad that he preached. Upon his execution, Said already influential as an Islamic thinker, becomes a martyr for his cause, and his jihad movement is accelerated. Do you know how they killed him? I don't actually. Stoned him, maybe? No. They, 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 Egypt at that time was um, not full-on, like, biblical. <laughs> like, they probably hung him or shot him. Mm. They hung him. Yeah, yeah, there you go. They hung okay. him. Yeah, 1966, right. yeah. They hung him. Now, I wonder if they did it, like, publicly. Possibly so, yeah. Well, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised because... He had wreaked so much havoc, like with the General Nasser at the time, was who was like the dictator of Egypt and stuff like that. And I've seen uh, footage of the Muslim Brotherhood being put on in tr like on trial very publicly in a huge cell with all of them, including like Ayman al Zawahiri, who ended up being one of the co-founders yep. of, of Al Qaeda. Uh, and they're all sort of in this huge cell while they're being put on uh, like public display. So the public execution thing has always really kind of fucking intrigued me, mm -hmm. not from like a morbid like standpoint, mm -hmm. but. Just think about the mindset behind that. And yeah. it took place a lot in America mm -hmm. back in the day. Like you broke the law to the point where you were deemed to die. Mm -hmm. Like in the public square sure. or in the town square, everybody would gather around, pretty much show up, have a few beers. Oh, it was uh, a big deal, especially in France. It was yeah, became yeah. like a like a, a oh, the an guillotines, event. the guillotines, the in guillotines, yeah. stuff like that. There's actually a really really great podcast that Dan Carlin did for Hardcore History, where he talked about torture and public executions for the entire show. It's like four hours of him explaining like historical reference points for public executions and how sort of insane it is. And then I would also like tandem that with another really good podcast uh, called Philosophize This, 
where he kind of breaks down how the criminal justice system changed over the past thousand years and how it used to be entirely punitive. And the idea was that the when you had like a king or a leader by doing these public executions, you were like saying, do not fuck with us. It was a yeah. deterrent. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. It's a deterrent. This is what's going to yeah. happen to that's you. Yeah. And that's it. why they were especially barbaric because but, it was like, oh, getting hung is one thing, but getting your fucking guts torn out in front of you and then like getting your dick cut off and then, like, or they burn qu- it. Quartered and drawn. Well, that's what it is. Yeah. You're drawn and quartered, and they, like, they cut you open. They hang you until you almost die, let you go, cut you open, pull your innards out, burn them in front of you, and then cut your head off. Now, by the time you're getting your head cut off, you're in fucking shock, and you're not probably really, like, totally there anymore. That yeah. But, that like, when you see that, they're just like, hey, even if you hate this king or this whatever it is, like, you don't want that to happen to you. Yeah, well, that's going to make you think twice. <laughs> you think about the average dude in his family. They're like, well, mm-hmm. got an execution going on this Saturday night. Oh, yeah. He sits around, has a couple bourbons, and then, like, gets the wife and kids, goes to the town square, and, whoop, there's Johnny. Yep, he's dead. Yeah. All right, well, All right. let's go Time home. Time to go home. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Re- gather the kids. That's right. Yeah. It was like the entertainment. It was like Netflix and chill. Yeah, honestly, um, we going we, to watch somebody get <laughs> fucking decapitated. Maybe at some point we should do like a fireside chat on this because it is a really interesting topic. And I it could is. It really go, is. I could go on this one for a, a minute. There's so much interesting stuff about executions and, and stuff like that. But we'll go back to Bin Laden back to for topic. a second. Now, some of you are probably thinking like, I'm confused. I thought that this show was about Osama Bin Laden and you're going on and on about this other guy. What the fuck? But the thing is, in a general sense, you know, you likely don't get Osama bin Laden. You don't get an Al-Qaeda or an Islamic State or really any of it without Kutub losing his mind in Colorado in the late 40s. His mid-century work set the tone for the surge in fundamental Islam that occurred throughout the last four decades of the 20th century. He is quite literally described as, quote, the father of Salafi jihadism. It's kind of a big deal in terms of global impact, and all because he couldn't get Peggy Sue from Greeley, Colorado to give him a hand job on some fateful summer night in 1949. With, With a, a bad, bad haircut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm, I mean, obviously, I, this is gross oversimplification. I don't, I don't think that's the reason, but it is it is fun to think about that. He got a haircut like we used to get those bowl cuts from our parents mm-hmm. back in the 90s where they literally put a bowl over us and just trimmed around. Yeah, he got the dumb and dumber, man. My mom was a pretty good barber. She could do the shave under. You yeah. Remember when we were in the grunge That's phase? Right. Oh, I you'd, remember. You do the bowl cut with the shave under and then uh, middle school, she would put my number. She would shave my yes, number in the I back remember. of my head. That's right. Yeah. But the other thing is, in a much more direct sense, guess who was giving lectures at Osama bin Laden's university in the 1970s? Said Qutub's brother, Muhammad, who had moved to Saudi Arabia following his release from prison in Egypt. Osama attends his lectures frequently. A close college friend of bin Laden's, a guy named uh, Muhammad Jamal Khalifa, said that bin Laden regularly attended weekly public lectures by Muhammad Qutub at King Abdulaziz University and that he and bin Laden both, quote, read Said Qutub. We were trying to understand what Islam has to say about how we eat, who we marry, how we talk. Quote, he was the one who most affected our generation. Jeez, man. Bin Laden's own mother put it a different way, saying, quote, the people at university changed him. He became a different man. He was a very good child until he met some people who pretty much brainwashed him in the early 20s. You can call it a cult. College changes a lot of people, honestly. It's true. Yeah, it's, where you find, it's, they, it's where you find yourself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A lot of people hate high school. I loved high school. I loved high school. Yeah, but college oftentimes is like the place where you, you leave Mm-hmm. The what you know from growing up 
and go to a different place, and it's your chance to kind of reinvent yourself. Sure, you know and find I mean? out who you are, really. Right. Yeah, you know. Or, well, and you're and, and at that age, you're as ideal as you could possibly be. Like right. the whole world's your oyster. You're like, yep. I'm gonna be a millionaire that changes the changes the globe. Everybody thinks that shit. Yep. And it's only when you hit our age at forty where you're like, man, I just. I'm just trying not to be broke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need fucking insurance and a paycheck at yeah, this point. Yeah, exactly. So Saeed Qutub has a whole generation of young Islamic men geared up on the idea of waging jihad to establish Sharia in their home countries. A whole generation is winding up and waiting for the opportunity to prove themselves. In 1979, the pot bubbles over. An Islamic revolution, although not Sunni or Salafist, takes place in Iran as the Ayatollah Khomeini and his followers unite to overthrow the Shah and establish Islamic rule under the banner of the Islamic Republic of Iran. What year was this? 79. 79. So is this the Iran-Contra? No. That comes in the 80s. And that's okay. uh, that's also something we'll get into on a side show because it is that's also fascinating. Yeah. That same year, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan takes place. I remember this. Yep. This was a well. No, I don't remember. Not I just, yeah. I just in know, real time. I just know this happened. <laughs> you're yeah. aware of this. Yeah, I'm aware of this. I was two and <laughs> yeah. uh, studying the history we, books of America. None of us were actually born. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, we were all, uh, yeah, we were all still in our pops nuts. So <laughs> <laughs> this was a huge deal for devout Muslims because the Soviet Union was notoriously ir- like irreligious. Karl Marx, father of communist philosophy, notoriously mocked the idea of religion as, quote, the opiate of the masses. Now, this quote has been taken out of context sometimes or whatever. Full quote is actually like religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world and the soul of the soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Marx basically was making the argument that like people use it as a crutch to get through their day to day shitty lives. Mm -hmm. And that is actually like detrimental to your uh, like the advancement of yourself as a person to make yourself a better person, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the reasons for the invasion because it's really fucking complicated. And we don't have the time, you know, for the uh, Soviet inva- uh, invasion of Afghanistan. But the point here is that the battlefield is a is like as stark a contrast as one can get between two opposing forces. To the young Islamist, the USSR represents all that is machine-like, self-absorbed, and soulless. And here they are invading and killing your fellow Islamic brothers. And you've been talking about waging an actual jihad to protect Islam and its followers and ultimately expand its influence. Well, duh. Like the time is like right then, right? Get your ass out of university into Afghanistan if you've got a fucking set on you and practice what Saeed Kutu preached. And Osama bin Laden does exactly this. Enter Osama bin Laden, soldier of Islam. Okay. So, uh, you know, following the Soviet invasion into Afghanistan, bin Laden eventually, like I think around 82, decides that he's going to go over there and to participate in the battle against the Soviets, right? Okay. And it doesn't hurt that uh, bin Laden has a fuckload of cash to help the cause either, right? That moves him much further up the line of influence of young men that traveled to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. Tons of people came from all over the place. He just happens to show up with millions of dollars. So, of course, it's sort of like in the Civil War when you had rich people that would buy their generalships. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Right. <laughs> you proceed to the front of the line. That's right. That's right. right. The back of the line. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. 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 I mean, he could he could hire people to be his soldiers and stuff like that, essentially. Bin Laden's brother said, quote, he spent all of his money in Afghanistan. He would sneak off under the guise of family business. The men that fought the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 80s were known as the Mujahideen, uh, which is Arabic plural for Mujahid, which is one who wages jihad. And they were well regarded at the time in any place that wasn't the Soviet Union or one of its satellite states. Seriously, 
go watch Rambo 3, where John Rambo travels to Afghanistan to find a friend who's been captured by the Soviets or some shit. The movie ended originally with the quote, this film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan, which was obviously changed post 9-11. Uh, <laughs> that part gets left out of the t- made-for-TV movie version. And I remember they were kind of glorified for oh, standing their were. ground or, you know what they I mean? They certainly yeah, were. war against them, yeah. Yeah, in fact... Because we uh, hated the Soviets that much. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. You didn't see what was coming. No, you, that's... You, that was what was called real politic, which was basically like uh, you did whatever real you politics. do. Well, yeah, it's basically yes, but it's actually it's it's uh it's with a so, K. You fancy, mean real politics? Yeah, I was about to say a fancy French word for yeah. real politics. It was yeah, it was basically just the a very like pragmatic, cynical approach to global politics, where it was just like, hey, whatever furthers our agenda, we're willing to do. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. But, yeah, right? sure. And in fact. <laughs> then like Rambo 3 they actually cut the alternative ending which would have been John Rambo deciding to stay in Afghanistan to fight alongside the Mujahideen can you imagine like John Rambo fighting <laughs> alongside Osama bin Laden because that shit almost happened in the imaginary world my fucking head's about to explode right now because I love Rambo movies and if he would have been with the fucking Afghanis and I, I mean old sly with the Afghanis, yeah, having, Afghanis on having, the sly boys. I'm having a hard time with this right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> man. They're coming after you. Everything God, you love. Yeah. yeah, dude. They're extremely highly regarded. Like I said, there's actually the famous picture of Reagan meeting with like Mujahideen in the Oval Office. They were also wow. some people like to put a quote on there. that He was talking about that. He said that they were um, the freedom fighters of, of their time. But actually, he was applying that to the Contras. In um, Nicaragua or whatever, which also was not great, but it wasn't the Mujahideen. Well, I remember when this all kind of came to light, everybody said, we gave all the Afghani fighters and the Mujahideen Mm -hmm. all their weapons. Because they were fighting against the Soviets. We hated the Soviets, so So we funded them. I'm about to get into that right now. We funded them with tons of guns and money. Yeah, Uh, like, like Randy pointed out, because the U.S. was engaged in the Cold War with the Soviets... We were all too happy to engage with the Mujahideen and supply them with money and things like anti-aircraft missiles, which arguably turned the tides of the war, right? The war grinds on for nine years before the Soviets say, fuck it, dude. Afghanistan's reputation as the graveyard of empires seems pretty fitting. We're out. And as it turned out, the Soviet empire did indeed implode just two years later. It's not Man. entirely because Look of Afghanistan, up. but it certainly was a contributing factor. Fucking history seems to repeat itself, right? Mm-hmm. We were over there for 20 years yeah. trying to beat this wall down, and yeah. here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge deal, dude. The Mujahideen feel vindicated, and bin Laden has made a name for himself. A child of immense privilege who like gave it all up to travel to foreign lands to fight the infidels and ultimately succeeded. His- he always looked real awkward firing the guns. He did. Have you yes. ever seen the pictures of Bin Laden like shooting the AKs? It looked like, you know. Yeah. He, didn't he was look the like, guy that never shot a gun. That, uh, he, he looked very novice. No, you know no, it's I mean? very, it's, it's yeah. absolutely true. They yeah. look like they're like, hey, dude, let's get this uh, promo shot of you shooting this AK. And he was just <laughs> hey, like, let's uh, take this shot for the gram. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. what it was, man. <laughs> I'd love to see him shoot a fucking rocket launcher and just get launched off his feet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, his brother Hassan said of Osama at the time, Quote, everyone who met him in the early days respected him. At the start, we were very proud of him. Even the Saudi government would treat him in a noble, respectful way. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, the U.S. via the CIA actively funded, armed, and trained some of the Mujahideen in a program called Operation Cyclone. 
And over the past 20 years, a lot of people, especially those in the conspiracy-minded circles, make the claim that bin Laden and his group was funded or even entirely co-opted by the CIA. They're saying that he was a CIA agent this entire time, right? So he didn't have to spend any of his money on it. It was all USA funded. Well, that's what the, the claim is. Yeah, but honestly, yeah. and it's not it's not a crazy assumption because like I said, we know that they were backing some of the uh, Mujah, uh, Mujahideen members. But everything I could find, it just it doesn't seem to be true. There were certainly some overlap between CIA back groups and bin Laden. But bin Laden did not appear to get direct help from the CIA, which may be, like amongst other things, why he started Al-Qaeda in August of 1988. Initially, Al-Qaeda was established as like a logistical network for Mujahideen recruitment throughout the Islamic world. They were basically just trying to get everyone they could to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. They're a staffing agency for terrorists, essentially. All right, yes. so then my question comes up. If Osama was being taught by the brother that mm-hmm. of the guy who died, mm-hmm. who hated America, uh-huh, why big... was he so keen on taking money or like being part of that outfit that took money from the CIA? To... Well, he, he, well, like I said, he, he didn't get funding directly, but the reason why anybody was taking the funding was also realpolitik. They were like, Dude, whatever we need to achieve our goals, that's fine. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and vice versa, right? It's a two-way street. Like they were happy the Soviets were the immediate threat, so they were happy to fucking take stinger missiles from the CIA to blow up fucking Soviet helicopters. Even though we don't like you, you're yeah. still you can help us on in this greater, more imminent yeah. threat. Yeah, and, and we were schmoozing we, with them. We bring size twenty twenty, right? Well, you exactly. never know what you're fucking getting. And it's into. easy to sit here and play yeah, armchair absolutely. expert yeah, on right. Monday morning. Well, this know. is this is what the term blowback means, right? Like you do these things, but there's like ramifications and things that occurred down the line that you can't necessarily account for initially, right? Mm -hmm. When the Soviets withdraw, the CIA ends its financial aid and consultation with the Mujahideen. More importantly, it appears they start to recognize the potential ramifications of having trained and armed and financed a bunch of religious radicals, right? That's what we were talking about. The CIA gets a lot of fucking guff, man, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're a very secretive operation Mm -hmm. that the government, you know, kind of lays out there. Mm -hmm. Over the years, like, I don't know, you see movies and you hear stories about the CIA is behind this, right? Mm -hmm. Like American Made with Tom Cruise. Super fucking secretive. Like, they're an interesting fucking group of dudes and an interesting, like, brain trust within the U.S. government. But that's that's another topic for another day. Well, yeah, I mean, I actually was going to cover that a little bit here because, like I said, it's it's around the same time that Osama bin Laden allegedly gets information from Pakistani intelligence that the CIA has put him on a list of targets for assassination. Now, whether this is true or not, I can't get confirmation, but let's just say that it does sound very on brand for the CIA. I wish they would pull that one off. Yeah, yeah, right. Shocker. Yeah. Like, side note, if you have an interest in like the CIA's history and stuff like Randy was talking about, go check out a book that's titled Legacy of Ashes. It's eye-opening, objective, it's well-researched. The guy that wrote it- That's one, one book I've actually heard of. Yeah. All right. Well, read I read it. it. Yeah, yeah it's a huge book. It. Yeah. I actually want to read it now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the book, like I said, in tandem with Lawrence Wright's uh, The Looming Tower, like, gave me a fundamental understanding of the geopolitical map of the late 20th, early 21st centuries. I can't recommend them enough, dude. Like Anytime people want to talk to me about this, I'm always like, take these two books, read it, and then you'll get a full expanse about like how the CIA- and how like the global jihad movement sort of interplayed over each other over the course of 60, 70 years. Yeah. And when you read it, especially Legacy of Ashes, the movie version of the CIA goes right out the window because they a lot of times were some bumbling fucking idiots, dude. Like they screwed shit up all the time, dude. 
um, in ways that, like I said, that we can see now with blowback and stuff like that. I wish I still had the books, but my dad never gave me back my copy. I was going <laughs> to ask you if those are the books that uh, you gave your dad. Yeah. You I, often I, talk about like, motherfucker never read them and gave them back. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you read them or not, but he's, I certainly never got them back. So dad, if you're listening to the show, find those books for me, buddy. And, and buddy sorry, wants to borrow them. And yeah. sorry, Mikey's dad for calling you a motherfucker. No, yeah. I didn't mean that. <laughs> I didn't mean that. No, but they're hard. They're hardback books too. They weren't cheap. <laughs> they're great. Anyway, people that know Bin Laden remarked that he returned from Afghanistan a very different man. Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, who's like a Saudi royal, he's also the intelligence head for uh, Saudi Arabia, and he was a friend of the Bin Laden family, noted, quote, There are two Osama Bin Ladens, one before the end of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan and one after it. Before, he was very much an idealistic Mujahid. He was not a fighter. By his own admission, he fainted during a battle, and when he woke up, the Soviet assault on his position had been defeated. So Randy's call about him looking really inept with a machine gun is pretty accurate. Fucking called that shit. Now, perhaps to avoid potential assassination, bin Laden returns to his home in Saudi Arabia at this point, around 89-90, where his anger at the U.S. festers. He allegedly feels that the Mujahideen had been exploited and cheated by the Americans and the CIA, and I suppose it doesn't help if he feels like they were trying to kill him. Um, but so in Saudi Arabia, he in Saudi Arabia he also expands his jihadi focus to like conflicts in Yemen, offering to send Al Qaeda members to fight the Yemeni Socialist Party. Right? The Saudi government is like, Nah, dude, it's it's cool, man. Could you just like just chill out just a little <laughs> bit? You know what I mean? We need you to tone it down just a little bit, guy. That's right. Uh, and then in August of 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait and is knocking on the doorstep of Saudi Arabia. This is a huge deal because Iraq, as we all remember, was led by Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athist Party. They were entirely political, right? Although Ba'athists were ostensibly Muslims, largely speaking, their objectives and motives were entirely economical, right? Not religious at all. They they were just political. Fucking America right there. We cleaned that shit up in 24 hours. Yeah, they had waged a war against the Islamic Republic of Iran for a decade, too, right? Mm-hmm. We sided with them. We also funded them and stuff like that, which is when you get those really embarrassing pictures of, like, Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam and stuff like that. And then 20 years later, we're, we're murking the dude. Um, <laughs> Rolling into town in tanks. And yeah, stuff. yeah. So, they, I mean, Iraq invades Kuwait basically to annex its oil supply, arguably to pay for that war with Iran. And Saudi Arabia has a fuck ton more oil than Kuwait. So the possibility that Iraq would like continue on to Saudi Arabia to seize its resources was not out of the question at this point. Sure, very plausible. Osama goes to the Saudi government and pleads with them to allow his group, Al-Qaeda, and its militia to be the protecting army against the Iraqis should they invade. But Saudi King Fahd has already accepted the United States offer of protection offered by then-Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great guy. Yeah, Osama bin Laden was like, bro, you know you shouldn't let Muslim lands be defended or occupied by non-Muslims. That's totally munafiq, which is like Islamic for hypocritical, right? Goddamn, they should have let them do it and just, never mind. Well, no, a lot could have been avoided, but, you know, hey, didn't happen, so here we are. And the Saudi defense minister, a guy named Sultan bin Abdulaziz, was like, dude, have you fucking seen the Iraq army? They're pretty stacked. I mean, they have like chemical weapons and shit. How could you possibly fight Saddam and his army with your little Al-Qaeda squad? Bin Laden's response was, real response here, quote, we will fight him with faith. And dude, this really isn't all that crazy of a response for bin Laden at the time, because he feels that faith was what put the Mujahideen over the top of the Soviets, a force much more vast and powerful than the Iraqi army. 
look, bro, I've already done this before. Yeah. All right. Look at my look at my resume. Yeah. Look what All we right? did and look what we did in Afghanistan. And it sounds really shitty to say this, but like just believe in Christ. Yeah. Just believe in Christ. God will God will lead us to victory. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Thoughts it's, and prayers and wins. That's right. Religious zealotry across the board. It's all sort of like God will take care of it. Well, how do you know whose side God's on? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, America's. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. He, he's like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll win this spiritually. Like, forget about the massive amount of financing and CIA supplied Stinger missile systems and pretty much everything else that helped in the Afghanistan <laughs> war. Like, uh, for real, what really hurt the Soviet army there was that Afghanistan is notoriously insane terrain wise. Yes. The yeah, only access yeah. they could get was with helicopters. And that's how they were, had these helicopter gunships that were coming in, wiping out like Mujahideen fighters. Well, when we sold them, them down, when we sold yeah. them fucking stinger missiles, guess what? Yep. Yeah. Which is, there's a great movie about that. Charlie Wilson's war, which yeah. uh, is kind of weird because it came out post nine 11 and it's, it's sort of like glorifying how Charlie Wilson sold stinger missiles to the Mujahideen and it was like a big win. But now you're like, Oh, maybe, maybe we should have let the Soviets take that one in hindsight. Yeah, dude, it's crazy. He's like, it's totally faith, bro. But yeah, like the, you know, uh, Sultan uh, is basically like, no, thanks. Dude. We got this. Sultan right? Ben. Sultan, yeah, that's it. That's Sultan it. Ben. Sultan Ben. Shortly thereafter, 100,000 plus U.S. troops arrive on bases in Saudi Arabia, and Osama bin Laden is incensed. He described this moment as, quote, the most shocking. This was just too much for him, right? Now, in the land of Muhammad, near the holiest of Islamic cities like Mecca and Medina, the infidels were set up in bases that might be permanent. Worse yet, these were infidels who may have sought out to assassinate bin Laden. So he's really having a rough time. Yeah, this. you're bringing the enemy even closer to me. Now they've got a better point to jump off from. Yeah. Every time I hear infidel, I think of Top Gun for some reason. Like, uh, remember the MiG fighters? Uh-huh. The infidels, that's how they were described was as. Was that what it was? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. When we were uh, giving uh, international relations, we uh, gave them the bird. That whole deal. International relations sounds like a really uh, high-end sex move. (laughs) We were giving them the international relations, if you know what I'm saying. It's like a uh, Montana musket load. Yeah, it's it. We'll have to add that one to uh, Urban Dictionary. So, yeah, Bin Laden's furious, man. He leaves his home country and settles in Khartoum, Sudan in 91, where he spends his time financing a major highway and various other construction projects. He, like, starts a bee farm and other businesses and of course, he starts planning terrorist attacks on the U.S. Ah, so um, yeah, he's doing uh, organic honey and terrorist attacks. That's right. Very diversified. That's right. Yeah. He's diversifying his portfolio. This there, time. there was an article I found that was like in time frame reference. It's really embarrassing. It was, it was like uh, written in like '93, and it was like former uh, Soviet like warrior or whatever is building the road to peace, and there's a picture of Bin Laden next to a road in Khartoum. <laughs> Right yeah. next to a bee, uh, like a beehive or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he's got, he's got a fucking roadside stand with tomatoes and That's cucumbers true. and zucchinis and honey. Hey, thumbs up, buddy. Everything's good. That that cucumber is a bomb. Um, yeah. So it's from there he organizes the '93 World Trade Center bombing, and that kills six people, including a pregnant woman, and injures like a thousand people. But it falls short of his intended purpose, which was to have the one bomb tower collapse into the other tower, which we now know would have been extensively more deadly. Oh, absolutely. And like side note here, it's always amazing to me how like 9-11 truthers always fail to account for how obviously horny Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were to destroy the World Trade Center. They fucking tried twice, dudes. And everybody's always like, no, I don't understand. I mean, 
it just came out of nowhere. I'm like, no, no, it didn't. They tried in 93. Well, it's funny because Biggie rapped about blow up like the world trade, right. right? And so my son, big hip hop fan, listens to that and he's like, oh, wow, that's fucked up. I was like, no, that was before the, the towers came down. That yeah. was the actual bomb in the basement yeah. that, you know, he yeah. was born in 2005, so he has no fucking clue. Right. About, yeah, well, and Biggie died before 9-11. Yeah, so, yeah he's definitely talking about that first one. Yep. And like I said, it was there. In fact, in 1990, they found um, some some like documents where Al Qaeda was talking about like blowing up buildings in New York at that point. So this was on their radar for for like for years. So like I said, it's always funny. So it's it's actually like right around this time in 1994 that Bin Laden also continues to openly criticize Saudi King Fahd, and really <laughs> after he keeps doing this, the Saudi royal family decides that they've had enough of that shit. They revoke his uh, Saudi citizenship. And they convince his family to cut off his funding, which is like roughly $7 million per year. Ooh, yeah, that's a pretty He's big He's a trust hit. fund, baby. He Fuck is that. A, he yeah, is a trust Jesus fund, Christ. I, all right, so I knew he had money from dad, but didn't realize he was they were that much of a fucking yeah. trust fund, baby. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. This even, is even more reason to but fucking I mean, hate his ass. There you go. And that's even back then. So, I mean, that's, I mean, almost the equivalent of 10 to 14 million a year. Yeah, certainly. In today's a, currency. And especially where you're living. If he's in Khartoum. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. He's, he's, that's why he's, he's literally like financing major highways and shit. You know what yeah. I'm saying? But it's, when they do that, it's like a pretty big blow to bin Laden, obviously. Worse still, the Sudanese government is trying to get more friendly with the U.S. at the time and other powers. And housing the guy that everyone is pretty sure tried to blow up one of the symbols of, of like the United States economy is not great. So they go to the Saudis and they're all like, take this fucking dude off our hands, okay? Like, give him back his citizenship and we'll send him home to you. But the Saudis don't want this fucking hot potato either. Remember that the Saudis and the U.S. have been super tight mostly due to oil requirements and supply for decades at this point. We were making them rich. We're the number one oil user in the world. Right. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we gave them weapons and all sorts of stuff to, for them to project power in the Middle East. So it was, you know, it's it, it, there's a lot that goes into the Saudi-U.S. relationship, which pisses a lot of people off, including myself. But, yeah, that's what it is. A bit man. of a dog and pony show and mm -hmm. a dick show. Yeah. Show your dick. Yeah, see how big you are. That's right, man. So they can't make it seem like you know, the Saudis can't make it seem like they're cool with the guy that tried to blow up the World Trade Center. Plus, he never stopped talking shit about King Fahd, and uh, they knew that wasn't going to stop anytime soon. The thing is, though, Bin Laden actually at this time was also ready to leave Sudan. He didn't feel safe there anymore, and he actually had dodged at least one assassination attempt down there, which was uh, like allegedly involved either the Egyptians or the Saudis and was financed by the CIA. Who the hell would... Uh the hell would want to live in Sudan anyway. I mean, it's it's Sudanese people, maybe. Yeah, I, don't know. I, know, I know it's bad, but yeah. they're they're torn. Like South Sudan oh, versus is, yeah. uh, nowadays, it is it's fucking terrible. They got a bad thing going on there. Very yeah. true, very true. But luckily for Bin Laden at this time, the Taliban, which is the cross section of the remnants of the Mujahideen from the Soviet Afghan War, they overthrow the government of Afghanistan and they set up a theocracy there. Bin Laden takes that opportunity with the approval of the Saudis. They're like, yeah, dude, go, go. fucking Afghanistan. Go. That's fine. And he returns to his old stomping grounds where he establishes multiple Al-Qaeda training camps with the approval of the Taliban. Mom, coming home. That's right. <laughs> and he starts to continue his efforts against the West. Now, on a personal level at this time, Bin Laden continues his father's tradition of wedding four wives, although his version doesn't rotate one out as like the flavor of the month. I learned it from watching you, Dad. That's right. If you don't catch that reference, it's an old anti-drug commercial back in the day where 
this kid was in his room, fucked up on something. The dad, on weed. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> fucked I up on was, weed. I right? thought it was like he was drinking or something like that. And he was like yelled at. I don't remember. I, yeah. I just remember the dad coming in, be like, yeah. "Where'd you learn this? Yeah. I learned it from you, Dad." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody yeah. remembers those anti-drug commercials. Well, yeah. some of our listeners remember those anti-drug commercials. Yeah. This is your brain. This, this is your brain, brain on drugs. drugs. Any questions? That's right. <laughs> but so Bin Laden has like four wives at this point. Uh, like I said, learning it from his dad. But like I said, he he thinks that they should all be treated equally. Uh, and maybe that's because his mom was that flavor of the month wife to his dad. Mom was a hoe. Yeah. Who knows? Some <laughs> of your mama a hoe, boy. <laughs> but as scary as a terrorist leader with an army of zealots at his command is, Bin Laden is also just a dude at the end of the day. A dude that likes to fuck. Uh, he said, quote, I don't understand why people take only one wife. If you take four wives, you live like a groom. He also is noted at this time as having drank Avena, which is a syrup made from oats that claims to have like Viagra-like effects. And at the time, he's also eating copious amounts of olives, which he believed produced similar results. And Bin Laden is image conscious. As he enters into his 40s, quote, he apparently regularly applied just for men dye to his beard. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, hang on. I'm also to, acquired by the from the Americans. God, I'm it. trying to wrap my head around all this. Like, just for men, mm-hmm. um, take a personal. That dude was fucking skinny, like rail thin. Yeah. If he'd have been like buff, swole, like going to the gym every day and fucking getting swole and doing all that, I could understand. But that, the guy was an ugly motherfucker. Like yeah. at the end of the day, he hey, was, how many ugly motherfuckers that are rich have the hottest girls? Yeah, you know. Dude, look at the richest guys in the world. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. ugly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's got he's got seven mil a year, maybe. You know what I'm saying? He's got tons of money. Plus, his businesses are probably making him money too at that point. You know, I don't know, man. But it's it's the just for men shit's hilarious. I'm like, that's a hell of a sponsorship deal. <laughs> just for men, tie yourself to Osama bin Laden anytime you guys want to. Which is a good tie-in to our sponsor for this show. Just, just for men. For men. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm, you're trying to kill the innocent, make sure your beard is jet black. <laughs> I'm not only the president; I'm also a client. I'm also a terrorist. What? Uh, what? What business was that? that? Was Hair Club for Men? Yeah, yeah, that was Cy Spalding. That's, That's right. right. Yeah, That's right. Now, in the freedom that a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan allows Bin Laden and Al Qaeda, he really steps up his terrorist efforts. February 22nd, 1998, he issues an official declaration of war against the United States, declaring. Quote, for over seven years, the United States has been occupying the lands of Islam in the holiest of places, the Arabian Peninsula, plundering its riches, dictating to its rulers, humiliating its people, terrorizing its neighbors, and turning its bases in the peninsula into a spearhead through which to fight the neighboring Muslim peoples. Because we were asked to. We, with God's help, call on every Muslim who believes in God and wishes to be rewarded to comply with God's order to kill the Americans and plunder their money wherever and whenever they find it. The ruling to kill Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it. In order to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Mosque, Mecca, from their grip, and in order for their armies to move out of all the lands of Islam, defeated and unable to threaten any Muslim. Randy's blood is boiling at this point. (laughs) Randy's blood's boiling. Randy hates Bin Laden. (laughs) Randy hates the terrorists. (laughs) (sighs) Again, to the 9-11 truthers who are all like, quote, what's the motive? There's no reason for some guys living in a cave to organize this. Like, first of all, he wasn't just some guy living in a cave. He had serious resources, right? And second of all, 
Bin Laden fucking laid it out there in pretty plain language what his gripes and what his goals were. He told everybody in 98 what he was going to do. So it isn't like this shit came out of nowhere. Where, where did it come from, man? Yeah, they're like, oh, qui bono, who benefits? I'm like, the guy that just said he wanted to kill Americans. It seems like he benefits <laughs> at that point, you know? Now I'm angry. Now I'm angry. We, now we, you're angry. Now I'm angry. <laughs> we all know what happened. In short order, following this war declaration, we get the U.S. Embassy bombings in Africa in August of 1998. That's 224 dead and more than 4,000 injured. Yep. We get the bombing attack on the naval ship USS Cole, 17 dead and 37 injured. And of course, we get the September 11th, 2001 attacks, which introduced the average American to the name Osama bin Laden, the group Al-Qaeda, and the concept of global jihad. It also quite literally changed the world, dude. And again, that's the other thing that I'm pointing out here is that there was a string of attacks from Al-Qaeda in those three years between 98 and 2001, and all the conspiracy theory people only focus on 9-11 as if it's like a standalone event. Yeah, no, they were ramping up to this and everybody's like, hey, man, all of a sudden, what, they just flew into there for no no reason? Right. No reason. Lots of red flags in the whole fucking training of that shit. Yeah. You go look at the fucking the flight school that those guys went and oh, fucking certainly. trained Oh, at. man, oh, so I many... I don't need to know how to land. Yeah. I just need to know how to fly. There was right. plenty of red flags, too, and it's unfortunate because in the 9-11 commission report, they said that they we're getting a lot of chatter on these terrorist networks that something big is going to happen, and it was sort of just kind of pushed off into the background by the Bush administration at the time. I'm not blaming this entirely on the Bush administration. I'm just saying that even the intelligence community was like, there's something going on here. Well, it exposed a lot of flaws in our own systems, right? You know, that things that they exploited Certainly. Very easily. And that's stuff that we can easily look back now and be like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. I mean, like, why why wasn't this looked at before? Well, it's true. It's like things you like know? interdepartmental uh, communication, man. Like, they didn't talk about, like, FBI and CIA didn't communicate with each other. In fact, there was, like, a big rivalry yeah, between them. they hate it. It was like the, like two uh, high schools in the same town that just, you know, like, were always pitted against each that's other. That's a good analogy, actually. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely. like, you know, like, anytime that one wanted information for the other one, oh, you got to fill out a D97426 form and we'll get back to you in yeah. three weeks. The ID-10 you know. form. Yeah, yeah you exactly. Know what the ID-10 form is? No, nope. ID-10T form. That's right. ID-10T. <laughs> idiot. Yeah, ID-10T. Okay, ID-10T. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Just uh, go, hey, go ahead and write a pen 15 on your, uh, on your hand. Yeah. That's it, man. But yeah, I mean, after 9-11, it, like I said, changes everything because then you have to get like Homeland Security becomes a new thing. Like yep. everybody has to air, like as, as somebody who used to fly in the 90s, it ruined airports. God damn it. The, look, I, I respect everybody in the TSA. Yeah. I, re, I respect what they do, but God, I'll oh, fucking mighty. Yeah. Mikey, you and I flew down to Fort Lauderdale mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Do you remember this? Of course. Um, I went through the security line and... Um, you got fucking flagged. I got flagged. <laughs> My bag got flagged. We were going down for a day trip. Like We were flying down early morning and yep. flying back later that night. Mm-hmm. It was a day trip. And I went through security. They fucking, I went through the whole fucking put your hands up and go through the whole like. The yeah, big, yeah, sure. You had to get butt naked. Scanner, the scanner, right? <laughs> Spread them cheeks and cough. Dude, they detected something on my hands that seemed like gunpowder. Yeah. I had to go. Resin. To, they went. And, <laughs> <laughs> I had to go. They scanned me down. We're like, you got to go to the secondary check down. I went to the little booth. Yeah. And yeah, I had to get down to my fucking skivvies and get scanned and searched. And Mike's like, what the fuck is going on? And they were like, there's something on your hands that 
appears as though it's gunpowder. They were really polite about it, but it they just were. was a they pain were cool, in the ass. But I was like, Jesus Christ, boys, I'm trying to get down to fucking Fort Lauderdale to handle some business. Yeah, he makes it sound like a day trip, like we're like trafficking drugs too. <laughs> we're just standing there for a day trip, flying back to Atlanta. Well, <laughs> we we're going to handle some business. Yeah, we did go to the strip club that afternoon, had that a great true. time, and then flew back that <laughs> evening. But uh, to eat at the buffet, yeah. we were hungry. Lunch that was all Randy. I was like, all right, I'll go. Uh, Mikey we, hates strip clubs. I do. Randy took him there. That's Absolutely, true. yeah. No, and I asked the guy we were going to see down there. Where's the titty clubs at? And yeah. he was like, go see this one. And I That's was like, right. sweet, sign me up. We got like six hours to get yeah. to our flight. So. That's it. That's what we did. Well, yeah, so TSA is a real pain in the ass. Uh, starts the war on terror, which is a boondoggle of immense proportions. We're talking trillions upon trillions of dollars. Yeah. It You don't get the Iraq war without 9-11. Even though Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, it pushed everybody into this sort of frothing mode where we were ready to just fucking kick the shit out of the world. So what do you guys think about airport security, honestly, in general? Like, is it enough? Is it too much? Um, I'll be honest. Like, nowadays when I fly, I they've got it kind of down, yeah. right? Like, honestly, 2021, they got it down. We go through the lines, you put your bag in the shit, you do the scanner, they they do your whole body, yada yada yada. Um does it make you feel more secure? I so I think it does, in my opinion, because I know that prior to nine eleven, there was just it was just so much more lax, right? They weren't checking as hard because they had no they had no frame of reference to need to prior yeah. to that. But, you know, once a, a situation happens, that just sparks the fire for everybody else or ignites the, the fuse for everybody else yeah. to try and do it. Well, so. that's true. And I mean, it's, you know, you're trying to put that horse back in the barn. I think, honestly, you know, a lot of it and I especially with with my job previously before I transitioned to another position, I was flying a lot. Yeah. And um, it's a lot of feels like security theater to some extent, but a lot of it is is, is adequate. So that's fine. Ultimately, you have to just sort of adjust your routine to match up like i started getting really good at traveling being like okay cool i'm flying no belt slip off shoes i have everything packed so i can just drop my laptop into this thing and you're in and out and then it's always when you get really good at it and you see other people really struggling to get like take like, out their change and shit and put it in the thing like kanye man i'm never gonna make my flight now how am i supposed to get there with all this jewelry on yeah yeah with the fucking plate in his jaw too you know <laughs> i'll never forget we went to cancun our senior year our senior trip buddy was with me and um on the flight there it was the three high schools in the county that we grew up in all were on the same flight. Mm -hmm. Again, this was 1999. It was insane. And one of the guys from one of the other high schools, I was friends with him. We were getting completely fucking wasted on the flight. Yeah. I filled up, I want to say six Dr. Pepper bottles with like Southern Comfort and Dr. Pepper. Mm -hmm. We were fucking wasted halfway through the trip. Buddy of ours gets up and gets the fucking mic on on the airplane. Yeah. yeah. And is like, y'all ready to get fucking crunk? And everybody, yeah. it was a fucking party, dude. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. fucking party. Nowadays, Air Marshal would have taken oh, that yeah. motherfucker down. It's it would have been lights out. Like, no, it's true. It's, yeah. it's like the, the flight experience is, is totally different and everywhere. You used to be able to go to the gate and wait for people. Oh, 100%. Now you yeah. can't do it, yeah. you know. So, but that's like, a, honestly, in terms of like the deepest impact, flights, is pretty low on the on the list. Like war on terror is pretty high. So all right. So nine eleven attacks were Al Qaeda and Bin Laden's biggest operational success. It feels weird saying that because you're like, it's success is a positive word, but you get what I'm saying. They put a plan in place and they 
achieved all of it. Which well, I mean, prior to that, he had he had already had two attempts plus a, a string of other mm-hmm. things that had happened. Nobody yep. knew his name here in the states. Yeah, that happens. I mean, it's a he's known yeah. worldwide. Oh yeah, because it it sealed his death warrant. That yeah. was the end of Bin Laden. It just was a matter of time. Still makes me really fucking angry that it happened. Yes. Of course, you know what I mean. Now. Most everyone listening to this is likely familiar with the next decade of Bin Laden, escaping the U.S. attacks in Tora Bora in 2001 and somehow successfully hiding for a decade from the most powerful military and intelligence apparatus in human history. So I'm not going to spend like a lot of detail on that because everybody already knows the story. Go watch Zero Dark Thirty or any other of these Bin Laden things. That's always mm-hmm. what they focus on is 9-11 and afterwards. Like needless to say, like his life became much more rugged and his operational abilities are like greatly diminished as he lives as a global fugitive while trying to continue to like organize attacks. In 2010, the CIA gets an odd tip. A Pakistani informant in the crowded uh, city of Peshawar spots a man believed to be bin Laden's longtime bodyguard. Long story short, they follow him back to a compound in Abbottabad that looks like a place where a global criminal might seek to hide himself. Like, there are no external views or no internal views. There's no telephone lines. There's no internet. So they investigate. They do further intelligence. Decide it likely is Bin Laden. Plan a raid. Send in SEAL Team 6. And bada bing, bada boom. Bin Laden, the face of America's worst terrorist attack, takes a couple of bullets to his own face. It's a double tap, right? Shot to the head, shot to the chest. Yeah. They did. They 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 burnt him. Pretty much everybody that was in that compound. I've read interviews with the guy that actually. Yeah, it. and a lot of seals are really pissed off about that because they're like, we're professionals. We don't actually talk about this or make claims, and they're really pissed off. The guy that came out and was like, "I was the one that killed I'd, him." Fuck that! I'd hang my hat on it, dude. I killed that motherfucker. Yeah. Well, I guess it's like yeah. a culture. Kudos. kudos to that son. Of well, a yeah, well, kudos like, to him. Yeah. But they're saying that's it's not a culture. What we do. I know. Fucking whatever. At that point. He's the most wanted man in the world. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. I have no qualms with that guy coming out and saying, oh, I'm no. the one that double tapped that it's, motherfucker. It doesn't matter to me because it doesn't matter to me because I'm not a Navy SEAL, but I'm saying that there was definitely some friction between him and the SEAL community because they were like, we're professional operators. We don't talk about this. This is just our fucking job and we do it. We do it quietly. Dude, Navy SEALs are fucking next level, dude. Yeah. Those guys. I mean, any any of the upper echelon of the military groups like that, whether it's a SEAL yeah, or a Recon, Ranger, yeah, Force Recon, all of them, man. Yeah. Like, dude, hats off yeah. all fucking day, dude. Yeah. No fucking way I could do any of the shit you guys ever oh, no, go no. through. It's, it's, it's insane, man. The SEAL training is, is bonkers, dude. But yeah, like I said, they went in there and took care of business, man. I mean, there's like I said, there's plenty of info about the raid, the compound, everything. Go check it out if you want like deeper details. I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time on that stuff because most of our listeners have already heard it. And like I said, I can't even do a good enough job. You can go watch all the movies about it. And there's plenty of stuff coming out about it right now. Exactly. You know, on the 20 year anniversary. Plus, there was another angle to the compound in Abbottabad that I thought was much more interesting and fitting for our show, which is supposed to be a comedy podcast after all. And that is the contents of Osama bin Laden's personal computer. That's right. The CIA in one of the ultimate shade-throwing official actions of all time, totally released the private contents of bin Laden's personal computer to the general public. Awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah. Pornhub. Yeah. <laughs> and like I was saying... Mia Khalifa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jihadhub.com. That's it, yeah. Uh, like I was saying, bin Laden is kind of this like wild example of the sort of like duality of man. Not so much in the framework of good and evil, but more in the sense of like a guy with normal daily motivations versus an international terrorist leader. Yes, he's a criminal mastermind that intentionally orchestrates the deaths of thousands upon thousands of innocent people. He's the head of an international terrorist organization. He's a fucking horrible person, but he's also just a person. 
The Just for Men beard dye is a hilarious illustration of this. <laughs> and the contents of his computer are probably an even better one. First of all, it's obvious from the contents and the beard dye, I suppose, that Bin Laden might have been a bit of a narcissist. He kept copies of Biography, Osama Bin Laden, Where in the World is Osama Bin Laden, and CNN's In the Footsteps of Bin Laden. Dude loved to watch movies about himself. Man. Where oh. in the world is Osama Bin Laden? That's what I was running through my head, too, but I didn't think too many of, of our viewers would catch that reference. He also had copies of movies like Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> Ice Age? Yeah. They were for the kids. They were yeah. for the kids. Yeah. And an IMAX. I like that movie. Well, now, before we get into this, I will say this. So there was only one computer in there, and he didn't have internet access. So... What they were doing was he would he, download like flash drives. And it's bring exactly right, yeah, and he would yeah. give it to his couriers, and they would take it out, and then they would he would they, they would bring ask me Ice Age. Yeah, please. <laughs> and his, I want to see the dinosaur. Movie. I like the squirrel in there. <laughs> his kids lived there as well, as well as did like a couple bodyguards. So it's impossible to know exactly what was his and what wasn't, but it's just fucking hilarious either way, man. Uh, he had an IMAX version of Mysteries of Egypt. So, you know, he was like, oh. yeah, I like to watch, uh, you know, documentaries, On I guess. the big screen. That's right. <laughs> he or somebody living in that home fucking loved Tom and Jerry. He had pretty <laughs> much every episode that was ever aired. <laughs> Will Tom ever catch Jerry? I don't oh, know. Man. <laughs> he had downloaded the Charlie Bit Me YouTube video. Charlie Bit Me. <laughs> <laughs> he bit me. Yeah, it was like a monster YouTube hit back in like it was like oh, one of the first or like, something like he, that. It was like oh eight or oh nine, and it was like it was one of the first huge viral, viral videos. videos. Yeah, it's fucking Western as shit. So fuck that guy if he's like I fucking hate all the Western motherfuckers. Yeah, you like our entertainment? Kiss my ass, you f yes fuck face. Yeah, Randy does not like Osama bin Laden. <laughs> my, blood, I, my blood's been boiling for twenty five minutes right now. There were also a number of funny cat videos on there too. <laughs> The number one viewed video on the goddamn internet are cat videos. That's right. Yep. Especially they were, in the I like the cat videos. There were multiple episodes of the Jackie Chan cartoon and even an episode of Mr. Bean that had been downloaded. <laughs> you know what would have broken my heart is if there was an episode of Seinfeld. Oh, man. I was going to say, I'm so there glad. was an entire season of Seinfeld. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. No. No chance. No chance. Jerry and Kramer, Elaine and George are way too sophisticated for that jackass to fucking get any of our comedy. Another thing is Bin Laden was, or someone at the house or whatever, was really into crocheting. Like, there were nearly 30 videos of nothing but crocheting lessons, including one, I shit you not, on how to crochet an iPod holder. <laughs> oh, really? And of course there was porn. Some of it, it like, as innocuous as a JPEG titled underscore booby underscore two sweet, sweet. nice nice yeah. yeah but also a lot of pretty hardcore hentai like uh bible black or something like that which it forced me to like look into and read what bible which, black was which forced me yeah, to yeah, uh. yeah, yeah. did you go incognito mode i, hope, I had to because i was like what is fucking bible black like and dude trust me when i say that i was pretty fucking blown away to be honest that hentai shit is fucking weird man yeah it there's certain versions of it that that's can an really incognito get... mode view that you definitely have to 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't. I, can I had, you find it on Pornhub? I'm sure you oh, can. Oh, yeah. I looked it up. Actually, there's like, I wanted to read what like the, 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 the <laughs> sure. comments were. Show research, I know. right? I, yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to go download Bible Black and watch the whole thing. I just was like, what the fuck is Bible Black? Because it's apparently like a, a huge, one of the big hentais or whatever. So they talk about it and you're just like, this doesn't seem like normal porn. This is really fucking weird, man. Like I said, there's just, there's so much weird and funny shit that came out of that hard drive that a person could spend hours like digging and digging and digging. And the CIA certainly let it happen. <laughs> they were, imagine one them. of us fucking died and it's like they, they release all of our porn searches. You're like, oh shit. No, like we have to, like we have the three way pact. If any of us die, like the other person has to go over and like erase all the history yeah. or whatever. That's, you know? No, and that, that's a fucking, uh, uh, I'm doing it right now. Pinky swear. We're all in the middle here. Pinky We're swear. all in the middle. Pinky swear. No porn release from any of the three of us. None. None of us watch porn anyway, right? Yeah. Right. That yeah. stuff's lame. Yeah. Except for that. I do. The, car- <laughs> the cartoon porn's pretty cool. <laughs> Which is hentai, right? <laughs> no, I'm just and Mikey was doing all the research. That's it. How do I even know about Pornhub? I don't even know. Who yeah. knows? It's just a cultural touchstone now. Everybody knows what it is. It's like MySpace or My Facebook. son was telling me uh, one of the pranks they'll pull in class is play the intro Pornhub music. Yeah, like on the drum. Like somebody will do the drumming part. Dun, and, dun, dun, uh, dun, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the exactly. pep rally or something like yep, that. And, and then every, they'll get suspended it, for like two days or something. How do the teachers know? Ah, yeah. That's yep. the joke. Absolutely. <laughs> So, of course, bin Laden's death didn't end the global jihadi movement because his life and actions didn't start it. He was just a major character in an ongoing story that will undoubtedly continue for a long time. The recent Taliban recapture of Afghanistan is confirmation of this. So, hold on to your butts, Westerners, because terrorist attacks are just a part of life now. Final scores, boys. All right, what you got, Randy? Holy fucking Christ. Um, I hate this guy on a level close to Hitler the things that he did to America his ideals of what he thought was supposed to be true against the Western civilization he fucking that it's, it's a total hypocritical move on his part because not only did he like Western things Tom and Jerry fucking all of the bullshit we just talked about with this fucking what was on his computer things like that he liked what we did but it was a fucking smoke and mirror show because oh I have to maintain this fucking image that I fucking hate everything about America. And even if he didn't like it, he was allowing the people in his company access to it. That's exactly You know what right. I mean? That's like, exactly so that's, right, dude. Yeah. Well, anytime you have a religious zealot, hypocrisy isn't far behind usually. Yeah, of course. Look, I'd like to take this fucking guy and pile drive him through a fucking table and watch some fucking Navy SEAL put a goddamn bullet in his head. I fucking hate the guy. I'm going 10.5. Okay. 10.5. Yeah. Hitler's an 11. This guy's a 10.5. Fuck Osama bin Laden. I can't fucking stand his ass. I wish they would have taken care of him in the fucking 90s. I wish he would have been all done sure. before all that shit would have happened to our fucking fellow Americans in New York. It would have Again, been- I'm not a fucking like Toby Keith lover, but at the same time, I am like, I have a, a, a deep sense of patriotism mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm not afraid to fucking say it, dude. I fucking love the country I live in. We live in the greatest civilization there is in the world right now. Like, a lot of people have a lot of shit to say about what we do and the government and all that shit. Fucking take all that aside. You're fucking lucky to live here. 
My yeah. son tells me all the time, like, oh, you know, all these people in the UAE, they're the richest people in the world. Oh, that's, it, you don't want to live there. Not at all. Especially not, if, no. if, unless you're extremely wealthy because everybody else is like slave, like labor class. That's the thing. It It's an ignorant type statement. You know what I mean? So fuck that. This dude is on a level with the fucking devil. Fuck this guy. 10.5. <laughs> Buddy, what you got? All right. So for me, you know, I have a deep seated hate for this guy. There's nobody else in the world that has actually had an impact on our way of life the way that this guy has. The way that the the world just changed literally overnight by the actions of one person. That's absolutely right. As Randy alluded to, you know, I mean, it's 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 parallel to Hitler. And I'm glad that I was able to witness in my lifetime what we were able to do to stop the buck right there. You know what? As much as I, and we don't get political in this show. But when George W. Bush stood up on the fucking the debris and he, he said, we're going to hunt these motherfuckers down and we're going to mm-hmm. get them, dude, my dick was hard, like straight up, <laughs> like Jesus Christ, that made me proud to be an American. Seriously, yeah. like that was like mm-hmm. we were all in this together. Sure. And to your point very early on, Mikey, like you've never seen a country come together mm-hmm. like we did around 9-11. No, 100%. And that's, a, dude, you got to fucking remember that shit because we didn't see this coming. You know, and intelligence I, had pretty good. I'm not going to say hats yeah. off to him for pulling it off. I'm not, and I'm not even shit. blaming him. It's it's a huge bureaucracy, but there was definitely information there that that is unfortunate. Should him off. Should have yeah. keyed him off. But it didn't. It didn't. And it happened. And it was I mean, God damn it, dude. It was one of the worst days in American history. Mm-hmm. And it fucking makes me angry as fuck to just have to have to go through that. Mm-hmm. So obviously nobody in America is going to glorify this motherfucker. Mm-hmm. But Jesus Christ, dude, if we could have ended this shit 10 years ago when they were doing the assassination attempts on them, mm-hmm. I wish it would have pulled it off. I wish it would have never happened. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry to cut in on your shit, buddy. It was, uh, that's my Toby Keith coming out in me. My bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, through his actions, you know, I think that we all collectively felt probably the same thing that Americans felt when Pearl Harbor happened, mm-hmm. when, you know, the Japanese came and bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what, like two acts that, that mm-hmm. really that really brought all Americans together. There's like- Well, and it's interesting, too, because like Pearl Harbor was different for two reasons. One, it was a military installation. And the other thing is that, you know, the media didn't exist at the time to display it. And it wasn't such a like cultural icon like the Twin Towers were in New York to see those collapse was visually like yep. and viscerally yep. shocking yeah, in a way that right. I don't think Pearl Harbor could have been because most people in 1941 didn't even know what Pearl Harbor fucking looked like. That's yeah, right. we just so, knew that we were attacked. Yeah, but I mean, we were witnessing this live on TV. Oh yeah, it was like you know, I remember I mean, the day it happened. It was just dead silence for like the entire day while everybody just sort of stared up at the TV and watched the towers collapse like over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I went when I lived in Hawaii. I went out to Pearl Harbor to see the the Arizona. Yeah, and it just didn't. It was sad, obviously, but it didn't strike me in any like really emotional way aside being like now when I read some of the letters from sailors and stuff like that, that hit me a little bit more. But in 2010, when I Go went to up, ground zero, we all yeah. we all went to ground well, zero. In, yeah, in so together. We yeah, all went. The yeah. three of us did. And I mean, it is a somber, 
well, experience. In 2010, I went by myself up there, and I went before they built the the One World Trade Center, and before they'd done the whole thing, they had like a small little area the over oil. there. Yeah, and I it literally I I choked up a little bit just because it was a big hole in the ground. Yeah, yeah with like a waterfall, and yeah. I mean yeah. it's uh, it's yeah. It I was, mean like I get goosebumps right now even thinking about it, just standing there like what happened yeah. right yeah. there. Yeah, I have a picture of my son standing there. Uh, he's got his hand on the memorial, reading the names. He's just. Yeah. I took. I was behind him, yep. and I took the picture of him, kind of reading the names that are on the memorial. Shit is fucking. It's it's deep, dude. Yeah. It's fucking deep, and I. Uh, yeah, angers me. Angers the fuck out of me. So, given the history, given everything that led up to it, you know, I mean, I can see where, under the teachings of extremists, I can see where he got. To where he got to, but that in no way doesn't justify, justify it by yeah. no by yeah. no stretch of the imagination. And you know, um, it, it it just it rocks me to the core. It still does to this day. I hate this guy. I'm glad that the outcome came the way that it did. And I mean, I'm right up there with Randy. I'm I'm at a ten point five for yeah. Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I think that he probably would have been right up there with Hitler mm-hmm. if he had had just more time and more mm-hmm. means. He probably could have elevated himself to that. I mean, he would have committed genocide on that kind of level towards America. But um, I got to step him back just a little bit. But yeah, I'm getting my final asshole score for Osama bin Laden is a 10.5. Yeah. Mikey, what you got? That's actually a really good point that you bring up because that's sort of how I had to to weigh this. I was trying to be like somewhat judicious in the scoring and not be just reflexively like, fuck that dude, it's an 11. But the truth of the matter is it's not just about the body count or what he did. It really is like the intent. And I think you're absolutely right, buddy, to say that like if he had the capabilities and the means, then he would have been more than happy to kill six million plus Westerners in general, uh, anybody they consider to be infidels. So with that being said, man, I mean, like I said, the intent is there. I also understand the context of the whole thing. And there's people out there like Zarqawi that are immensely more malicious, but the end result would is likely sort of the same thing. So I'll I'll go with the ten point five as well, just to make it easy. Because yeah, I mean he's not at the Hitler level because he doesn't he didn't pull the numbers, but he he probably would have wanted to. No, you know, my 100%. true hang on my true hate for this motherfucker. I'm going ten point seven five, ten point seven five. Randy's final score on this fucking jackass man makes me fucking angry. All right, with a ten point five from Buddy, a ten point five from Mikey. And a 10.75 from Randy, Osama Bin Laden's final asshole score is a 10.6. All right. Man, that is our highest score. Yeah. Well, we lived through 9-11. So absolutely the fucking there. Yeah, absolutely the fucking finish. Uh, yeah, but at least he's not being glorified like Christopher Columbus. That's right. Our, uh, he, that who was, true. who previously held the, the top spot. There you uh, go. You, someday I may live in Bin Laden, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Thank you guys so much for uh, tuning in for this episode. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. Definitely go check out our fucking website, ahcpodcast.com, all of our social media pages. And also just want to give a special thanks, a shout out to everybody out there. I mean, this is our two year show right here. Absolutely. And we wouldn't be here without, you know, everybody that tunes in. And I mean, Mm -hmm. just I mean, thanks, guys. I mean, like, yeah, we didn't expect to be where we're at. At this point, you know, and I mean, just I mean, thank you from the bottom of all of our hearts. We just want to thank each and every one of you guys. Absolutely. Patreon is coming soon. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, Until next time, this is Asshole asshole Court. Court. Randy Keith. (laughs) (laughs) 